0: All right. Turn together with me to Genesis chapter fifty. Genesis chapter fifty. We will begin reading today in verse fifteen. Let's pray, dear Father. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. Neither are your ways our ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, your thoughts and your ways are higher than ours. Forgive us, we pray, for presumption. How little we think of your ways or ponder what are your thoughts. Our own thoughts consume us. Our own ways satisfy us. As we come this morning to your thoughts revealed in your word, your ways recorded, Will the Holy Spirit move us to delight in them, and to submit to them, and to rejoice in them? For you are worthy of all our thoughts. You are worthy of all our praise, for everything that you do is wonderful. Give us, we ask, eyes to see the object of your affections, that is Christ Jesus, and to have him as our own. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word, Genesis fifty. 15 through 21 when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead they said it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am, in the, am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about, that many people should be kept alive, as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them, and spoke kindly to them. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, as we've been preaching through Acts, last time I preached two weeks ago, I mentioned we, we were in chapter four, and I mentioned as I preached on prayer and the prayer of the assembly after John and Peter got released from the Sanhedrin. Um, I, as I focused that sermon on prayer, I also mentioned that we would probably, as I came back from GEA, spend some time focusing specifically on. Um, portion of the text about predestination, um, and because I know the Calvinistic zeal of this bunch, I knew you would be enthusiastic about that. I thought, I've never really preached a sermon on that topic that I can recall um, specifically, (laughs) and so this will be a topical sermon on that subject. Um, Such doctrines are worthy of our focused attention because while they are often despised or disparaged as impractical or divisive, um, the Bible presents them as holding a great deal of biblical import and practical significance. Um, So... The verse that brought this topic to our attention, verses from Acts 4, verses 27-28, through which reads, For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So what? He seems to be saying here is that God planned and predestined the actions of men that they also undertook to crucify Jesus. Such a verse provokes questions. If what they did was evil, was God evil to to predestine it? If he predestined it, are they responsible? Could they even help it? Do we have the freedom to do what we want, or are we robots? What implications does this have on the, on human freedom and the freedom of the will? I don't plan to answer such questions <laughs> today. Not directly, anyways. I will leave those questions for now to the philosophers, though they are important questions. My first duty as a pastor is to do my very best to discern the voice of God as it is in his word, and to proclaim that and apply it to us today. So what I want to do is to simply contend that the Bible clearly assumes both God's absolute sovereignty and man's responsibility. I could never produce a mechanical diagram of the laptop that I wrote this sermon on, but I do know it works. I know its key components and I know its value to me. So that's my plan for this morning, is not to provide a detailed mechanical diagram of how God's predestinating sovereignty works. I could not do that. But I simply wanted to point out to you the scriptures, and to contend that these truths work, and they work hard. They work for the grand narrative of God's history, and they work for our own lives, which are part of the great drama of God's history. So I'm going to begin with this point, is that the Bible assumes compatibilism. The Bible assumes compatibilism, and I think we need to define some of that. So compatibilism is actually more of a philosophical word. It's not strictly a biblical word, so I'm not tied to it. But if we want it, So if we want to call it something else, we may. But I believe it does describe fairly well what the Bible teaches about this subject. And We're talking about compatibilism, particularly in these theological terms. We're talking about the will, the freedom of the human will in relationship to the freedom of the divine will. So, compatibilism occupies the space between sort of determinism and libertarian free will. Is everything that man does absolutely determined, where no one can divert or will divert from the course of history which God has decreed, or is man free to do as he wishes? Much to the consternation of many, compatibilism responds, yes. Yes. The answer to the question, does man decide what he does, or do we only do that which God has decreed, is yes. Man's will, and therefore his responsibility for all his actions, and God's will in his decree are compatible. That's where the term compatibilism comes from. This is the position of the Westminster Confession. Chapter 3, section 1 says, God, from all eternity, did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures. Nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. So God ordains whatsoever comes to pass. That's everything on a grand scale, scale down to the tiniest thing. Like Sproul says, if there's one rogue molecule, right, then God is not in control. It says he's not the author of sin, for sin is an act of human rebellion against God's law, nor does it offer violence, or it does not um, take away the will of the creatures. We, we will continue to do that which we wish to do. Nor does the decree take away second causes. In other words, God ordains what happens as well as how it happens. So admittedly this is a challenge for us a challenge for us to wrap our heads around. We're talking about the things of God here so why shouldn't it be a challenge? This brings us to our next point in the definition of that the Bible assumes compatibilism that is the Bible Assumes compatibilism. The other day, I was listening to an interview with um, John Piper, and apparently, he has like dyslexia. And you may be surprised to know he's not as well-read as, as he might like to be, though probably more than I am, still. But he described this situation where he was in a room, like at a conference or something, with really intelligent, well-read people, and one man would just kind of went off on this long philosophical. Uh, explanation of something with all these sources that he had read and when he got done piper said I think I could have said all that with this verse one verse and I I can't tell you how many times that has happened to me I'm rarely the most well-read or smartest person in a room and, and there's always more to know always more to read more to understand for example, we, we sometimes feel like, man, I need to read all the cosmology books, the geology books, the biology books before I can understand cre- creation. There's always more. We'll never get to the bottom of it. So, well, of course I don't poo-poo reading or, or learning philosophy. We must remember the words of the wisest man who ever lived in Ecclesiastes 12 when he said, The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness to the flesh." The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So as amazing as our capacity to reason is, as image bearers of God, there is no substitute for revealed truth. There's only one who has the capacity for complete knowledge. And the Bible is where we turn to receive knowledge. So not only does the Bible answer the question of sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, but I believe it answers it quite clearly. And not only does it answer it clearly, but it presumes it as a doctrine worthy of our meditation, of our conversation, of our adoption, of our our rejoicing. And it presents it as a doctrine we can find a great deal of comfort in, a great deal of confidence in, and wisdom for our daily lives. So, as much as we'd like it to, it doesn't present it in a way that we have the mechanical diagram of the inner workings of the mind of God. Um, Probably better that we don't have that diagram. But praise God he has given us a portion of his mind in the Bible in the revelation of the scriptures so that's the second part of our definition here is that the Bible assumes compatibilism the third part is that it does assume compatibilism So again it doesn't explain it in, in the detail we would like and in fact at times it rebukes us for probing too far into the unrevealed will of God Romans 9:18 through 20 says, So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, Why have you made me like this? See, we don't have permission to probe beyond what God has revealed. The confession likewise warns in chapter 3, verse uh, section 8 the doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care but it goes on to say a little bit later so shall this doctrine afford a matter of praise reverence and admiration for God and of humility diligence and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the, the gospel so we should be careful with it not probe farther than we're given But it should cause us to praise to glory in God. So, the Bible plainly assumes compatibilism. That's the the point that I've tried to define for you. And now we'll look at some of the places where the Bible does uh, assume compatibilism. The first thing we have to say is really the whole Bible portrays a God who is in absolute control and men who are in rebellion against God and a God who, by his own will, redeems them. And really, even in our own daily lives, we actually assume the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Especially, it's obvious when we pray. For example, we'll pray, Lord Protect us on the flight to St. Louis. At the same time, we'll say to the pilots, Thank you for a safe flight. Right? They're in control. They have to do their job. And we ask God to help protect us. We assume compatibilism. Or a young person after college is simultaneously confused about what he is to do and what God is doing. Even an Arminian believer in praying for their friends and family says, Lord, save my uncle. As though God is in control, and yet they pray. So it seems, though we can't wrap our heads around it philosophically, we naturally understand that God superintends all things to the smallest detail, while also never removing from us the responsibility to act. So we could look all over the Bible, but there's three kind of well-known, absolute dead-ringer texts on this topic of compatibilism that we'll consider. If you've studied it before, you know what they are. Genesis 50, Isaiah 10, and Acts 4. So we'll look at Genesis 50 and verse 20 in particular first. Uh, We know well the story of Joseph, how he was the favored one among his brothers, and then he was sold into slavery, thrown into a pit, first sold into slavery, wrongly accused, um, thrown into prison, and then brought by God's providence into uh, the place in second command in Egypt to um, preserve food during the seven abundant years for the seven lean years and here in this story after their father Jacob dies his brothers begin to worry Joseph Joseph may retaliate against them for what they've done after their father's dead But in response in Genesis 50:20 he says as for you you meant it for evil against me but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today So here we have a single action With two intents and two actors in one action. You meant it for evil. God God meant it for good. And what they did was evil. God had a higher purpose in it. He was guiding and coordinating history through the wickedness of the brothers. Yet God didn't bring the brothers along kicking and screaming against their will. They wanted to do it. They wanted to harm him. They hated him. They acted according to their own will. That's the first one. The second one is Isaiah 10. And we'll look at... In fact, if you want to turn over there, this one's a little bit longer. Isaiah 10, 5 through 12. <clears throat> Isaiah ten five through 12, God is speaking. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against the godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him, to take spoil and seize plunder, and to tread them down like a mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. But it is... In his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, Are not my commanders all kings? Is not Calno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of idols whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and to her images? When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, this one, (laughs) there's no arguing around this one, especially verse 5. Woe to Assyria, who is the rod of my anger. They're carrying out God's will on his behalf to punish the nations and yet he's angry with them for their indulgence in violence and their haughtiness. Assyria doesn't even know they're the rod in in God's hand. They think they're going to go to Jerusalem and that Jerusalem's God is an idol like everybody else's idols. They are God's instrument and yet they're acting according to their own will. Now the third one, and the one from Acts chapter four, is 4:27 uh, through 28. For truly, in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, for whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and plan had been destined to take place. This is amazing because you have the wills of so many different groups of people with so many different agendas. Herod, Pontius Pilate covering for himself, trying to preserve the peace, the anger of the people of Israel. All of these wills combining to complete God's will. So do we suppose that Herod or Pilate could excuse themselves at the judgment seat because they were carrying out God's decree? Or could Judas, for example, stand before God and say, I couldn't help but betray Jesus. In fact, it was predicted in the scriptures that I would, and maybe I should be commended for helping you carry out the atonement. Yeah, he acted in sin according to his own will, his own desires. He did that which he wanted to do, and even admitted as much when he went back to the, the uh people at the temple he said i have sinned in that i have betrayed innocent blood his actions were sin and yet it was in the predestination and providence of god so there's no way really around this scripturally as hard as it is for us to fathom we can't do away with these simultaneous truths that God is in utter sovereign control of all things and man is responsibility for his own actions. Now, then the question is so what? Like, why does that matter to us? So we'll take a moment to consider the value in believing and supporting and contending for such a doctrine. And I want to reiterate uh, what the confession said about the doctrine of predestination. It's far from being a doctrine just for the head. It is a doctrine for the head and the heart. you recall it says, So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God. And of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. I want to give you some application by way of three exhortations. The first is rather obvious trust in the sovereignty of God. Trust in the sovereignty of God. I mean, what do you think Joseph was thinking when he was going through everything that happened to him? He went from being the most favored son to a prisoner in a far off land. I mean I can't imagine the heart wrenching sorrow of your brothers turning on you like that and selling you into slavery. And then and then finding yourself far away from your family, your father who loves you. I I, I don't I wonder what he was thinking, and I doubt it's something along the lines of God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. As we were um, at General Assembly this, this week on Friday night, uh, actually into Saturday morning, business went into, to, at to, to 12.30 at night. Uh, we got to bed around 2.00. We woke up just before 6.00 to catch our flight. Uh, we were on the runway, and the pilot was saying, we got just a tiny window that we can take off. And as we were like right there. We stopped, and we sat there for an hour and a half. We had already been delayed an hour, so by the time we got um, back to Dallas, we had missed our flight to Montrose, and we spent the whole afternoon, very frustrating, in an airport filled with grumpy people, including ourselves, uh, trying to get a flight back home, trying everything. We were going to go to Phoenix and then Grand Junction, and nothing worked out, so we finally got a hotel room, stayed in Dallas, um And all the while I had been thinking on this sermon and writing it and thinking about the sovereignty of God in trials. And compared to Joseph, what a tiny, mild trial that was. But it is hard to trust when we can't see, when we can't understand the purpose. And when we'd like to control the outcome. I don't know the purpose of that particular trial, The purpose of Joseph's struggle is quite grand. It is the preservation of the covenant people of God. The preservation of the line of the Messiah. Also, the fulfillment of the promise that to to Abraham that his seed would come into the land, but before that, they would be in slavery for 400 years. This is the beginning of the fulfillment of that promise. So we don't know what God is doing with our lives, but we should trust in his sovereignty Trust in God's sovereignty means that we must define good by his terms and not ours. I read an article on the plane by Derek Thomas about the providence of God. And he asked this provoking question. What do you think went through the minds of those disciples who carried the blood-soaked body of Stephen to his burial? He goes on. Were they perhaps tempted to say, what a waste? Couldn't God have spared this godly man so that he might be of use to the church in her time of need? Does God care about us at all? In these questions, they would have been showing the short-sightedness that is so much a part of unbelief. They would not have been reckoning on the purposes of God, for there at the feet of Stephen's corpse stood a man upon whom... Stephen's death had the most profound impact. In hearing the voice of Jesus speak to him and accuse him of persecuting him, Paul learned what is arguably the most characteristic feature of his later writings. To persecute uh, of Jesus' little ones is to persecute Jesus himself, because every Christian is united to Jesus in an indissoluble union. You see, there's purpose in even the death of Stephen. There were many purposes, I'm sure. That's just one. We don't all go through the sort of classic rags to riches stories that even Joseph kind of did. Those make up some of the greatest stories, but that's not true for all of our lives. We're not meant to think by Joseph's story that if if we stay true and have a great attitude like Joseph did, in the end our lives will turn out great. That's far from the point. Some of us will be more like Stephen or worse. Some, even now in our world, are dying and watching children die and be abused for their faith. These people will never be recorded as great heroes in the Bible, except perhaps as the martyrs in Revelation, which is a a wonderful place to occupy in Scripture. But I want to commend to you the absolute sovereignty of God. I mean, we we so clutch at the idea that we should be in control of our own lives. We, We prostrate ourselves before the idol of libertarian free will. I want my free will. I want my control. But only one can have absolute libertarian free will. And that's God himself. And really, what a comfort, because the alternative is a horrifying idea. So do we trust the sovereignty of God, that, that absolutely everything in our lives is because he willed it to be so? From mundane irritations like... I mean, our fridge broke down. What what an annoying thing. God superintended that, that, right? From something like that to martyrdom itself. Or on the good side, from the simple joys of, of a glass of wine to the great ones of a birth of a child to the greatest ones of salvation of family members and even our own souls. God is in control of each of those things. We are where we are because it is good in the eyes of God. I don't know if there's any one truth harder to believe on a moment-by-moment basis, but I also don't know if there's any one truth more liberating or more comforting. So We trust in the sovereignty of God. That's the first exhortation. The second is we must own our responsibility. We must own our responsibility. So we can't live outside the will of God in the sense that we can't divert from his decree. I don't know if you've seen, there's a new show out called Loki. It's a Marvel show. We've been watching a little bit of it, but it's kind of confusing. But there's these like timekeeper, sort of God-type figures, and there's this timeline. And there's this whole organization that they have created To where if people divert from the timeline, go away they weren't supposed to go, then this organization brings them back and and gets the timeline back in order. Uh, it's, It's an interesting idea. That's not how God's timeline works. It is literally impossible for us to divert from the timeline of his decree. On the other hand, we can live outside of his will in the sense that we can live outside of his... Preceptive will, his precepts. We depart from that part of his will daily, (laughs) hourly, minute by minute, even second by second. God's intention to use the vile Assyrians for his plans made them no less vile. They were exceedingly wicked, breaking God's precepts and most of all, taking the glory of God unto themselves. So if compatibilism is true, and it is, scripturally, then we in no way can make excuses based on the sovereignty of God. I often will try to use the sovereignty of God to excuse myself, to abdicate obedience, or to excuse wickedness. Things like prayer, preaching, evangelism, and service, these things are our responsibility far from being eliminated by the sovereignty of God, they are established by the sovereignty of God. We pray because God is the one who governs the universe. We speak the gospel because he uses the gospel to save. We serve because we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand for us so that we would walk in them. Again, the confession, nor is the liberty of contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. And we can't excuse ourselves for our wickedness as though God made us do it. Genesis fifty seventeen. Um, Jacob calls what the brothers did, sin. He says, say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. It is sin. Just because God foreordains it doesn't make it any less sin. So we need to, as we hold firmly to the sovereignty of God, also own our own responsibility. The third exhortation here is simply to delight in the glory of God. Delight in the glory of God. Uh, One of my favorite TV shows for good or ill is the sitcom Seinfeld. You can uh, accuse me of things after the service if you wish for that. (laughs) I think the characters and the dialogue are funny, but what I really love about it is that I can see through the show into the writer's room. When I hear a line or a particular word, they seem to really appreciate words or a circumstance unfold. I picture the creators, Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David, in some room somewhere just cracking up over what they had composed. And I think that's good. true with any good art or entertainment. We can see the character, the delights, the interests, the passions of the creator in the product that they make. So we like to think of ourselves as the playwright of our own lives. We compose a narrative so that we can display our own passions, our own genius, our own pleasures. Which in one sense may be true in that we're responsible and that if in Christ we're doing our best to put on display Christ to, to decrease as he increases, that, that may be true. But how often do we think of the whole history of God as his great drama? He being the divine playwright, communicating something about himself. This is something he's composed so that we would see through to the writer's room. So that we see his delights, his character, his pleasures. often do we think of ourselves as actors in his divine drama rather than our own? As written for his own glory, a play where Christ is the sinner character and not we ourselves. Michael Horton puts this well. He says, Created in God's image yet fallen into sin, we have our identity shaped by the movement of God's dramatic story from promise to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. This drama also has its powerful props, such as preaching baptism in the supper, the means by which we are no longer spectators, but are actually included in the cast. Having exchanged our rags for the riches of Christ's righteousness, we now find our identity in Christ. Instead of God being a supporting actor in our life story, we become a part of the cast that the Spirit is recruiting for God's drama. So sure, we can debate till we're blue in the face about all the philosophical complexities of a doctrine like the predestinating sovereignty of God. But when, when it comes down to it, we must learn to delight in the truth that God governs every molecule in his universe according to his own will, for his good pleasure, for the maximization of his glory. Let us learn to share in God's delights that there's no greater good than the glory of God. For him or for us. So as I come to the close of this message, I realize a half hour or about, thereabouts is, is on a topic like this is only long enough to raise more questions than it answers. But I hope the truths that we touched on today can nudge us toward... What the confession said about the topic that this doctrine shall afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God, and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. So I'll leave you with Paul's words from Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 6.